Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows and more. We are your male models of minutia, your co-hosts of cool story Hansels, your superintendents of so hot right now, your Billy Zanes of BS trivia. We're cool dudes. We're trying to help you out. My name is Jordan Runtog. What else could you have fit in there as way of reference? I got yeah, that's all I got. Oh. And I'm Alex Heigl. <laughs> oh, Merman. Oh, that's good. That's good. You should have done Merman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Sorry. Take that whole thing again. The whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, today we are talking about one of the most beloved comedies of the early aughts, a film that taught a generation important facial expressions like Blue Steel and Magnum, a film that dared to ask the question, why male models? A film that showed us that sometimes all you need to sort through important issues is, say with me, Heigl, orange, orange mocha, frappuccino. mocha frappuccino. You didn't say it. <laughs> you mouthed it, which doesn't work on audio. Well, folks, of course, we are talking about Zoolander, a film that follows the ups and downs of two ridiculously handsome men, just like us. I can't lie. Uh <laughs> This is one of the movies that I just sort of absorbed through osmosis as a kid. And, you know, I watched bits and pieces of it at parties or sleepovers, and I heard lines from it repeated ad nauseum in school. And, you know, I think I just sort of lumped it in with all those other kind of similar comedies from that era that were just sort of silly. But somehow a disproportionate number of people in my life never grew out of quoting this movie. (laughs) And I'm talking about like some serious snobs I know. And clearly so many people have a real soft spot for this movie, which makes me really happy. And that made me decide to revisit it recently. And you know, I was won over by its charms some 20 plus years later. Now we've had this topic requested on many occasions, but I'm sending this one out to a very, very dear friend. I don't want to embarrass him, so I will just call him Sir Duke. He knows who he is. Uh, he and his beautiful, talented, and kind wife just became parents, and so I hope this keeps them company during the uh, insane hours I'm sure they're keeping. 
And also, I'm a jerk. I haven't gotten my baby present yet, so I'll, I'll do better than this episode <laughs> soon. Uh, not only is he a new father, he's also a musician, so his hours are extra crazy in addition to raising a newborn. Uh, and while I'm on the subject, folks, if you're in the New England area and are in need of a band for your wedding or event, please look no further than Legends of Summer. I can say from personal experience, they are the best around. Google them, check them out. They are amazing. Uh, not that they need the plug. I'm sure they're booked well into next year. But uh, anyway, this one's for Duke. Back to Zoolander. Heigl, what do you think of this movie? It's great. You know, I'm not really sure where Stiller stands in kind of like the modern comedy canon because yeah. he's made some like real bad movies too. But though. also some bad ones. Yeah. No. And and I think Zoolander 2 kind of erased a lot of the goodwill for this movie. But I have a lot of respect for him as like a director. And uh, we were talking about this before we started taping. But I, you know, Tropic Thunder came out when we were in college. And it was also the last era when I was buying physical media <laughs> and, ha and had a lot of free time. So what we watched all of the bonus, like deleted content and blooper reels for that movie in like at one sitting. And I was just blown away by the discipline that he has in like riffing and doing these again and take after take of riffing and then, you know, as a, and as a director. So I really I like him a lot. And I don't know if his like the kind of um, I don't know, people call it bro comedy, like the kind of like more wedding crashers, old school, old school yeah. anchorman sensibility. I don't know if that kind of passed him by, but um yeah because that I, was what i always lumped this movie into yes and then everyone, his sensibilities are very different, very different I, I, yeah. he comes from i mean you know his dad and mom are like old school like borscht belt 50s tv stand-up comics like that's i think his style of humor more than uh like haha poo splatter everywhere <laughs> you know but he reminds me a lot of uh, another comedy auteur, Jerry Lewis. I mean, in that level of like the stuff that's on the screen is so ridiculous and absurd. But as soon as he gets like behind the camera, he is so deathly serious that it's almost right. scary. I think you compared him in these special features <laughs> when we were talking earlier to Hannibal Lecter, just face yeah. falling. It's, it's in the scene where he's talking with he's doing Robert Downey and Robert Downey is obviously the part of that film that has aged the least well uh, yeah. is the blackface bit. But it's in the whole like I'm a dude disguised as a dude playing another dude like scene. <laughs> and there's like a half hour of them just riffing take after take after take of just them face to face with each other. And it's just stiller like they go through a take and, and Robert Downey Jr. is like staying in character and staying loose in between takes and Ben Stiller's face just goes blank and he's like, yeah, that was good. All right, let's do another. And it's just like, that is a little scary, but boy, does he get results, except for Zoolander 2. Well, I was watching uh, the Conan O'Brien episode of Inside the Actor's Studio, which is hilarious that that exists. And, um, and he's talking about how comedians react differently to jokes than anybody else. You know, whereas a normal person would laugh, comedians are like, you know, puts fingers to chin. Hmm. Yeah. That's funny. That's, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and it's like, it's very, it, it's scientific almost. Yeah. And, um... The one fact that I wasn't able to shoehorn in here, I'm glad you you opened up a great spot for it. Apparently, the Earth to you know Earth to whoever bits that Zoolander does with his um, with his roommates, I think it's his roommates. That was supposed to go on for like an interminable amount of time, like four or five minutes of screen time, like something insane. And an early cut of the movie had that because Ben Stiller just thought it was the funniest thing in the world to just push that as far as it could go. And there's that great 
comedy rule where it's like something's funny, then you do it again and again and again, yeah. it stops being funny, and then you keep doing it and it gets funny again. And uh, yeah, that didn't really work with that. So with the test audiences, they cut that. Mm. Yeah. So that was that fact. <laughs> but yeah, the whole notion of comedy being this scientific study is really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. For you, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well... Well, from the VH1 sketch that led to its creation, to the pop-punk 90s band that nearly provided the soundtrack to the gasoline fight, to the legendary American <laughs> author who sued the production for plagiarism, to the controversial actor who nearly played the villainous Mugatu, here is everything you didn't know about Zoolander. What'd you say? It's really one of the all-time ridiculous character names. It is. I never stop laughing. Speaking of Anchorman, I just I keel over every time uh, Vince Vaughn's character is introduced and Will Ferrell goes, Hello, Wes Mantooth. <laughs> <laughs> like, what if something about funny-sounding names just activates the 11-year-old in me? Well, we'll talk about where that name came from. The character of Derek Zoolander predates the movie by a good five years. He made his debut in a sketch for the 1996 VH1 Fashion Awards, and Ben Stiller wrote the character with his writing partner Drake Sather as a continuation of a Beverly Hills 90210 parody he'd done a few years earlier on the short-lived Fox sketch series The Ben Stiller Show, which is co-created with Judd Apatow. I forgot he was involved with that. Yeah. Hmm. Heavyweights, too. Right. Oh, heavyweights rules. We should from do that, heavyweights. From that, that era. Yeah. yeah. So the Bones of Zoolander, the character is, in Ben Stiller's words, a Luke Perry type parody, which is funny. I don't really see that. Mm. I guess I don't know 90210 that well. Yeah. Perry's like kind of non-acting handsomeness. Yeah. Scowling, yeah, pouting. Yeah. Okay. I guess. But the name Zoolander was borrowed from real-life male models Johnny Zander, which is a great name, and Mark Vanderloo, another great name. Uh, See, so you, you take the Z from Zander, the Ooh and Ander from Vanderloo, and you get Zoolander. <laughs> I, I need you, a visual aid there. Could the you end. explain this for like another 10 minutes of taping, like how those names were combined phonetically? <laughs> <laughs> gold uh, but yeah so Zoolander first appears while being interviewed for the 1996 VH1 Fashion Awards and the bit was so successful it was just like a little sketch but it was so successful that they brought him back the following year 1997 for another sketch in which he pitches the Derek Zoolander male modeling school which did you watch that it's on YouTube you can see both these sketches and it's really funny no I didn't actually watch this one yeah it's really really funny material for both of these sketches were ultimately used in the final movie but uh, I think there's some stuff that didn't make the cut so it's worth watching if you're a fan yeah there's some great lines in that uh, the, the aborigines have a saying that taking a picture steals your soul well let me ask you a question how many aborigines do you see modeling not many did that make it in the final movie I forget uh, I don't know. I spent hours <laughs> working on my walk. If I'm walking for Armani or Hugo, I'm thinking, I better not trip. I have a little bit of trouble with turns because I'm left-handed and they haven't built a left-handed runway. That's great. That's great. <laughs> I've walked over a thousand runways in my career. If you put all the runways I've walked down end to end, it would be so long that I couldn't even walk down it without getting tired. I think the only thing that's good about it is that there aren't any turns. That's Give good. Give me nothing. Give me nothing. <laughs> Bark like a seal. 
<laughs> now, in these early sketches, Zoolander demonstrates a look that he calls the Ferrari, which is what he made his bread and butter on, he says. And he also demonstrates his iconic blue steel look, which he says he saves for softer catalog work. <laughs> And it's so over the top and hilarious, you'd be forgiven for assuming that it was a well-honed bit of comedic business. In fact, the look is just part of Ben Stiller's daily mirror routine. He says that he had no idea that this look was funny until his girlfriend at the time, later wife, Christine Taylor, pointed it out to him. He later said, it came from looking in the mirror when I was brushing my hair or whatever. My wife would say, why are you making that face? Why are you doing that? And thus, Blue Steel was born. Well, the idea to expand the VH1 sketch into a feature-length film came about following the world-beating success of Mike Myers' Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery and its 1999 sequel, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Ben Stiller explained the influence of the movie in an interview with Esquire, saying that he, Mike Myers, was taking these very broad characters and making movies that were incredibly funny and somehow worked in the long form. I could see a lot of similarities, speaking of, like, comedians who are so goofy on screen and then kind of, like taciturn and scientific and calculating off screen. I can see a lot of similarities between Ben Stiller and Mike Myers. Yeah. Another yeah, one yeah. too, if you watch him in interviews, especially when he's talking about comedy, is Steve Martin. He is like so dry. I've had some friends who've interviewed him and they've been real comedy fans thinking that he was going to be this witty, not quite laugh a minute, but like, you know, kind of warm. He's like really stoic. So it's so interesting to me. But anyway, Ben Stiller and his writing partner, Drake Sather, fleshed out this story about high-ranking fashion people, the evil designer Jacobin Magatu. Jacobim? How do you say that? Jacobim. 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 Jacobim Mugatu, played by Will Ferrell, and Derek Zoolander's agent, Mari Ballstein, played by Jerry Stiller, who we'll get to, brainwashing Zoolander in an attempt to assassinate the Prime Minister of Malaysia <laughs> to prevent the Prime Minister from passing progressive labor laws that would harm their businesses. It writes itself. But given the association with the VH1 Fashion Awards shows, it should probably come as no surprise to know that VH1 signed on to produce the movie, making it the first major theatrical film that they ever got behind. But Ben was kind of worried about how the fashion world, and especially the male models he knew, would receive the movie. He said it was his hope that it would be greeted with good humor. He told Hollywood.com, I have to say, I think male models will understand the movie. The male models are incredibly good-looking, incredibly nice young men who've had a really good sense of humor about this. Mark Vanderloo and Jason Lewis, they know all about it, and I've met them and did some research and hung out with some of them. And Mark Vanderloo has a guest spot in the 1997 Zoolander sketch, so clearly he's into it. But apparently the film wasn't well-received when it was released in the hot couture capital of France. Ben Stiller later said, I went to France to do some press for the movie, and all the French people were going, why is this an attack on the fashion industry? Why do you think the fashion industry is evil? But as we'll get to, almost no one was fond of this movie when it was first released. So, the basic plot of Zoolander was in place, but Ben Stiller and his writing partner, Drake Sather, I think that's how you say his name. <laughs> they really struggled when coming up with Zoolander's backstory, and they toyed with all sorts of ideas for his family history. Early versions of the script had him growing up in New Jersey with a twin brother who worked as a Bruce Springsteen impersonator. Mm -hmm. Medium funny, kind of seems like a, a, um, a wedding singer type bit. Uh, another version had Zoolander growing up in the shadow of Mount Rushmore. This is great, which served as his inspiration to become a chiseled male model because all the presidents are chiseled in the rock. These great 
jawlines. Relatively speaking, yeah, it's, it's great. That's really good. <laughs> but ultimately, they went with the story about Zoolander coming from a Pennsylvania coal mining town. <laughs> do the cough. Do the cough. <laughs> I think I think I'm getting the black lung pop. Like pop. <laughs> Walking as that as his, as his dad, man. That was Incredible. John Voight doing his best. Oh, like, you're right. It's Walken, John Voight, not Walken. But he's doing yeah. like he's doing a total Christopher Walken impression. Yeah. Very deer huntery. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Vince Vaughn also has a cameo as Derek Zoolander's brother Luke, and I love this. They were gonna give him lines, but then when he got onto the set, they all decided it'd be way funnier if they got this big star to just stand mute in the background for his cameo. So that's what they did. No lines. <laughs> um, and for the exterior shot of the bar where Zoolander has a fight with his dad, Ben Stiller. I don't know why his directorial vision i guess he really wanted to get his own chocolate labrador kalua to run out in front of the bar for the exterior shot and christine taylor later said i was a little worried because our dog is in no way shape or form trained for the movies but ben and i stood off camera and called her back and forth and she was so obedient it was the most well-behaved she's ever been and we were so proud i love how what a family affair this movie was we'll talk yeah. more about that in a minute uh, well, so now we got to go down the casting roll call, uh, starting with, of course, Hansel, <laughs> Zoolander's nemesis turned friend. That part was written with Owen Wilson specifically in mind. Um, but at one point, it looked like Wilson had been booked for another movie and was unavailable. So they held auditions and the only person Stiller even considered was Jake Gyllenhaal. That's nuts. It's really funny because Gyllenhaal would have been coming off like Donnie Darko. <laughs> Or right? Bubble Boy. I'm not quite sure. Oh, I think Donnie yeah, Darko. Yeah. I forgot about Bubble Boy. Um, according to Stiller, Hall did a wide-eyed version of Hansel. That was really <laughs> funny. So, yeah, he's probably giving him the Donnie Darko thousand-yard stare. Oh, my God. You're right. Okay. I can kind of see that, I guess. Very um, different movie, though. Yeah. But ultimately, Owen was able to make uh, make it work, which was crucial, uh, despite being busy filming Behind Enemy Lines with Gene Hackman. He goes back to the well of co-stars. I like that. He, You know, they were in yeah. World Tenenbaums together. Stiller was in World Tenenbaums. So he missed the first half of filming. Um, and so as a result, the climax where Zoolander takes down Magatu with his new look uh, was filmed in two... I can't believe I read that sentence out loud. Was filmed in two parts with Ben Stiller in New York and with Owen in L.A. And there's a Wes Anderson Easter egg in this movie for the scene when they, uh, when Derek and Hansel try and infiltrate Mari's office. Hansel's jumpsuit has a Kumar uh, name tag, which is a you reference to, yeah, Kumar Palana, the Wes Anderson regular who plays Pagoda in Royal Tenenbaums, um, who stabs Royal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a I tiny have, no, I'm on Owen Wilson's IMDb now. I don't remember there ever being a period where he was like a in any way being positioned as a semi-serious action star was was behind enemy lines the only one maybe but he was in like a lot of big budget kind of mainstream stuff because he was in uh anaconda which is like a you know horror kind of thriller uh, action thing also with john voight actually as a matter of fact while we're drawing connections uh, yeah. john voight doing john voight doing the absolute most insane pan south american accent in 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 anaconda we watched it uh last year and he has this line reading where he goes the jungle can kill you on a thousand ways it's like he sounds like he's doing like uh tony montana by way of uh don corleone um uh and then he did uh what else did owen wilson do 
haunting the haunting the haunting was like another horror thriller thing so there was a time when he was kind of getting slotted into like big budget kind of you know thriller stuff but he also was writing uh, all of the um right wes anderson stuff man owen wilson rules <laughs> i like that for him uh ben stiller said owen was the most important casting to me in the movie because i think he's one of the funniest people around and the part was written for him I don't think the movie could have been made if he couldn't do it. He's a friend of mine, and we worked together a number of times. We love working together. I think he's such an important part of the movie, because making a movie like this where it's based on a short film, a sketch originally, you figure out ways to make it work in a longer format, and you have to introduce new elements. I think the best thing about his character is that he's real and goofy. The relationship with Derek and Hansel is really important and a real thing. He's just a uniquely funny guy. There's no other person like Owen. Agreed. Uh, Owen improvised a great deal of his role, including the stuff about Sting being a major inspiration, which is so hilarious and so specific, um, about him being the type of guy who just wants to know what bark is made out of and so forth. Um, and, but Stiller did get, uh, quite the array of, uh, stunt doubles to help Owen with some of the more, uh, shall we say niche aspects of his role? Uh, he had a breakdancer double, a scooter riding double and a yo-yo double. Um, and this is great. That yo-yo double, a real, a real, a real G, uh, <laughs> is, as in as much as any professional yo-yoist, you, what do you, is it a yo-yo player, a yo-yo, yo-yoist, a yo-yoist, uh, a yo-yoist. inflection on, on the, on the second yo. So yo-yoist Steve Brown was named a national yo-yo master the same year that the movie was released. Make of that what you will. Uh, and sadly to many women everywhere, the hair is a wig. Um, it is Hansel's hair is not Owen's. Uh, the one thing he couldn't do, uh, they couldn't get him a double for was the walk-off scene, which unfortunately had him petrified, Aww. which I find adorable. Uh, Owen said that shooting in front of large audiences makes him nervous and he didn't feel comfortable even doing the very bare minimum amount of dancing that he's required for that scene. Uh, so he told the AV club to go out and have to do both those things standing in front of a lot of people was a little bit nerve wracking. The walk off scene took four days to shoot and required the help of an outside choreographer. And it was the hardest to edit because of the uh, sheer amount of ridiculous footage from Stiller and Wilson. And uh, Ben Stiller didn't help himself by waiting until the last minute to edit this and eventually settled on the, um, the split screen technique. And apparently they, or he arrived on that after seeing an early trailer cut for the film and was like, that's the convention that I would like to use for this. Uh, and of course, now we come to the Bowie element. <laughs> that that walk-off scene is, of course, immortal for being judged by David Bowie. It probably um, didn't help Owen Wilson's nerves. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, how how could you? Uh, how could you do anything with the, in front of David Bowie? Breathe. Ben Stiller had written Bowie into the script as that judge because he had the Bowie song Fashion in mind when he was writing the scene. Uh, but he had no idea whether or not Bowie would even consent to being in the movie. Uh, but thankfully, Bowie is has a great sense of humor and uh, 
Well, why don't you read this part about his his bond with uh, Ricky Gervais? Yes, I actually, I stole this from a uh, podcast I did on the life of David Bowie. So so people who, who have listened to that know this story. But yeah, David Bowie, again, as you said, incredible sense of humor. And he loved The Office. Like so many, he was a big fan of Ricky Gervais' BBC original version of The Office. And he loved it so much that David Bowie sent Ricky his version of a fan email, which read, I watched, I laughed, what do I do now, DB? (laughs) (laughs) And Ricky Gervais was a David Bowie super fan. I mean, I just, I love it when people grow up and become famous and they retain their fandom and then they get to meet their fans and they turn into like teenagers all over again. I love that. So Ricky Gervais was thrilled that his hero you know, acknowledged him and actually liked his art, which I just find so cute. And the really weird thing was, apparently, according to Ricky, at least, the day that he received this email from Bowie, he'd just gotten back from, uh, he I guess he'd lost or scratched his uh, CD copy of Aladdin Sane. So he just got home from buying a new one, which I find really weird and cute. Mm-hmm. So anyway, as the friendship solidified, Ricky eventually plucked up the courage to ask Bowie if he wanted to be in his new series, Extras, in 2006-2007. So perverting his hero worship, he cast Bowie as himself, but an especially mean version of himself. And he meets Ricky's character, who's this hapless D-lister, and Bowie's inspired to write a song on the spot about him called Stupid Little Fat Man. And... (laughs) Ricky wrote the lyrics himself and he sent them to Bowie and asked him to put his own tune to it. And the request was something retro, you know, like like life on Mars. (laughs) And Bowie (laughs) replied sarcastically, oh, yeah, sure. I'll just whip up a quick life on Mars for you, huh? And Ricky, of course, appreciated the absurdity of the suggestion, and they both burst into laughter. But, yeah, the scene is, to me, one of my favorite moments in Bowie's career non-music category as they lead, you know, as he leads this pub through choruses of little fat man with a pug nose <laughs> face while Ricky Gervais's character looks on mortified. It's so good. Check it out. It's Extras is the name of the show. Pathetic little fat man No one's bloody laughing The clown that no one laughs at They all just wish he'd die He sold his soul for a shot at fame Catchphrase and wig and the jokes are lame He's got no style, he's got no grace He's banal and facile, he's a fat waste of space Yeah, yeah, everybody sing that last line One, two, three He's banal and facile, he's a fat waste of space See his pop, no space Great piano playing. I, I was gonna say, yeah, it's like really. Anyway, so I just I love that. I love that. Uh, and also, David Bowie he reprised the song on stage in May of 2007 when David introduced <laughs> Ricky Gervais at Madison Square Garden for his American stand-up debut, which technically is Bowie's last ever musical performance. <laughs> oh God! Or a public performance, I should say. Many fans conveniently forget this. They think that it was a year earlier at. Some other fashion event, actually, I think it might have even been a VH1 fashion event there. He did, uh, he duetted with Alicia Keys on Changes, I believe. But technically, the last song that he ever sang in public was uh, Stupid Little Fat Man with a Pug Nose Face for Ricky Gervais, which would you say I that think is lovely. Would you say that there's not a lot of people know that? <laughs> not a lot of people know that. <laughs> Can you? Uh, I don't. 
Dude, I don't know if I've ever heard your Michael Caine. I, it's just the bit from the trip. That's the only, that's just like the. <laughs> I still can't get over how good your Sean Connery was. I was listening back to Armageddon the other day. <laughs> I'm just very impressed with it. Oh, I love, uh, you know, the other one I love doing is Dragonheart. The the dragon movie where I am the last one. <laughs> he rings some real pathos out of that movie. Yeah, because he's yeah, he talking does. about, yeah, but it's not good. I am the last one. Um. Anyway, as Ben Stiller <laughs> told Hollywood.com, David Bowie, literally, we just came up with the idea of who would be funny to judge this walk-off. Bowie, with his song Fashion, personified that. We put it in the script and sent it to him, and he actually said yes. That was one of those out-of-the-blue things. Bowie himself had this to say about it. It was just too funny a script to walk past. An absolute hoot. <laughs> Which is a very Bowie sentiment. Yeah. I'm working on a Bowie one, but it's actually all from... Uh, it's actually all from that video I sent you of of him doing uh, uh, with uh, Brian, you know, in the studio. Oh, the cartoon? Yeah, that yeah. lives in my head forever. Oh, it's I, a rivetingly depressing piece of music, Brian. I, I don't do like it. the Concords. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jermaine does a really good one. Uh, while live tweeting about the movie, Ben admitted that everyone on the set was in shock that Bowie was there to do this cameo. And he made such an impression that they went out of their way to dedicate some words to him at the premiere of the sadly woefully misbegotten sequel, Zoolander 2, uh, in February of 2016, just a month after Bowie died. And I think that's the last time we will mention Zoolander 2 in this episode. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated.
Well, let's get on to greener pastures here. David David Duchovny. Duchovny. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Gene Hackman, an enemy of the state, as we so often do, the look of former hand model J.P. Pruitt, played by David Duchovny, was based on Gene's look in Enemy of the State, apparently, hence the, the bald cap. I, again, Owen Wilson loves paying tribute to his former co-stars, I guess. <laughs> uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in Zoolander because it features the immortal, but why male models? bit where uh, Zoolander asks why male models are being approached to become assassins to take out the prime minister of Malaysia. <laughs> and the first time he asks the question, David Duchovny's character gives him a long involved answer to which Zoolander considers it before responding, but why male models? <laughs> It's one of the great all-time ad-libs. <laughs> yeah, this exchange was apparently not in the script. It's Again, you can almost tell it's way too funny to be something that was ever written down. Right, yeah. it was, uh, ben Stiller legitimately forgot his line, and so he just asked the question again. And David Duchovny just riffed with him. And it was so funny that they kept it in. Stiller explained the entire story in a Reddit AMA. He said, I literally was listening to what David Duchovny said, and I honestly forgot. I hadn't followed what he was saying. I said it again, and I got my lines wrong. And David, who's a very funny guy, improvised, are you serious? I just explained that. <laughs> so, did you know that David Duchovny went to a private school in Manhattan where he was a classmate of JFK Jr.'s? I didn't. I wonder how long it's going to take for him to get into roped into QAnon. I was just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> do, do, you, do you remember the song? It, it might have just been a, a local Boston musician. I'm not sure, but I remember it was played a lot on like the independent radio stations near me growing up. A song called David Duchovny, Why Don't You Love Me? It was like released no. at the height of X-Files mania. No. Um, yeah, it was just this like woman's, like like a fan song to David Duchovny, but it was actually like pretty catchy i'm trying to remember who sang it brie something but uh yeah it's a and the chorus is david duchovny why don't you love me i'm gonna kill scully <laughs> oh speaking of jody foster weren't we talking about that or was that before the yeah. tape was rolling oh yeah <laughs> that was before the tape was rolling oh, but, yeah. oh and now we head over to will ferrell as jacobim mugatu Mugatu's name was originally going to be McQuicken, supposedly a reference to the late British designer Alexander McQueen, but that was later changed to Mugatu, which is apparently an, a reference to an albino ape-like creature <laughs> from the original Star Trek series, because Ben Stiller is a massive Trekkie and loves to sprinkle in Star Trek references in those movies whenever he can. Um, it's also rumored that Mugatu, or Will Ferrell, I should say, ad-libbed, I'll be a monkey's uncle at the end of the movie uh, as sort of a nod to the monster that gave him his name. Uh, Will Ferrell also ad-libbed the Crazy Pills line and the, the breakdance fighting line. Another incredibly uh, quoted bit. Yeah. I love how Will Ferrell screams. <laughs> I love how it's like just in the realm of losing control vocally. <laughs> Yeah, it's he so really good. has it pitched perfectly. I watched uh, the uh, VMAs thing with, uh, no, the Mo MTV Movie Awards Matrix bit where he's the oh, architect at the end. Oh, it's oh. so good. Yes. Vis-a-vis, concordantly. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about that. I probably haven't seen that since it was on. Yeah, it's it's good. Holds up. Yeah. You haven't answered my question. Yes, I did. You see... What you I, haven't answered me. I'm trying. You just need to let me talk. Why am I here? Ugh. Would you shut up? You won't let it happen. No, you won't let it! I'm the one who talks! Okay, mouth shut! Ears open! 
You have an answer. You do not want to see me get out of this chair. Ergo, open your yapper one more time and I'm going to architect a world of pain all over your candy ass. Ergo! Vis-a-vis! Concordantly! I apologize. I don't usually like to use my big voice. Will Ferrell, he plays this role so well. I was shocked to learn that it wasn't originally written for him. The part of Mugatu was actually written very specifically, according to Ben Stiller, for Andy Dick, who had Mm. to drop out for scheduling reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what they call it when he's like, well, never mind. I I think he was making a pilot when when he's... Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> not, no, no good. No good comes of Andy Dick references. But he does still have a cameo as Zoolander's extremely unattractive masseuse, Olga. And Ben Stiller says on the commentary track that he's actually really unhappy with Olga's makeup in the movie because it's so thick that you can barely tell it's Andy Dick and it ruins the joke. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I picked up on that. Yeah, actually. no, I didn't either. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually, I forget why Andy Dick couldn't do the movie. I think, I, I think he was doing a pilot or something. Mm. So the role went to Will Ferrell, making it one of his first major roles. It was two years before his roles in Old School and Elf, which were both in 2003. And perhaps because of this, he was a little more willing to cave to some of the physical demands of this role. His absurd hair in Zoolander is real. Will Ferrell had his hair dyed platinum three times, which has to hurt. And it also forced him to wear a wig for half a season of SNL to cover it up. Uh, And they were also going to make him wear pants that had a big M cut out of the butt. But uh, (laughs) as costume designer David C. Robinson later told MTV, we never actually got around to that, however. (laughs) And they also crammed him into corsets, which Will Ferrell later said really, really hurt. And speaking of unfortunate fashion choices... We have to talk about Mugatu's deeply offensive Derelicte collection, which in the world of the film takes inspiration from the fashion of, quote, the very homeless, the vagrants, the crack whores that make this wonderful city so unique. And uh, though <laughs> Another, the w- one of the throwaway lines that makes me laugh, you can derelict the balls. <laughs> Uh, In the world of the movie, this runway scene takes place in a subway tunnel, but it was actually shot in an abandoned power plant in Long Island City. And this just seems too insane to be real, but uh, there apparently was something similar to Derelict in real life. The British designer John Galliano used clothing worn by the unhoused as an inspiration for his fashion line in 2000, described as... a quote hobo chic look. Yeah, Galliano is a piece of. <laughs> does, does he do other things? I mean, I guess that's the only thing you need to do to be considered a, a not oh, great well, dude. But it's so funny that you would ask about that. Oh, um, in uh, December 2010, he was uh, taped uh, drunk in Paris, yelling, "I love Hitler." Oh my! People like you would be dead to a group of Jewish women. Your mothers, your forefathers would all f-ing gassed. Well, that's pretty unambiguous. <laughs> uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And he was uh, fined 6,000 euro in September of 2011. Okay. So, uh, so he I sucks. Guess this, I guess this scans. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's talk about somebody who doesn't suck, though. One of the models who is used in the Derelict Day scene is uh, actually a real-life New York character Known as Radio Man. Have you ever heard of Radio Man? I have, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
His uh, true name is Craig Castaldo, and he's known as Radio Man due to the fact that he wears a radio around his neck pretty much all times. And at one point, he was uh, homeless in New York City before becoming a semi-famous cameo star. He's appeared in over 100 movies and TV shows. And I guess his first cameo occurred when he was asked to move when a movie was shooting, and he refused to. (laughs) So he just was in the movie. And then he just started visiting movie sets kind of as a profession in 1989. It started with Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King with Robin Williams. And I think Robin Williams often made it a point on all of his film shoots to uh, to hire uh, the unhoused in the area where they were shooting to uh, to kick some money their way. So then I, th- I think that started with The Fisher King because I think Robin Williams' character is – I think he lives on the streets. I haven't seen that movie in a while. The movie's but, great. Yeah. I think that's actually how I found out about Radio Man was reading about Fisher King. Fisher King, yeah. And I guess Radio Man was able to locate film sets in New York with the help of Teamsters, who are the guys that – actually, what, what do the Teamsters have to do with film shoots in New York? I'm not sure. Uh, they're like the – they're just the trucker like the schleppers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and also by uh, finding no parking signs that indicate an upcoming shoot, and he would just show up and they'd stick him in the background. In the 90s, he was arrested and had a six-month evaluation at a psychiatric hospital, but he was released and continued to visit film sets and uh, made a decent living doing so. As of 2004, he was living in Brooklyn and he earned money from not only his acting roles, but selling autographs as well. He had parts in 30 Rock, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, The Departed, Shutter Island, Romance and Cigarettes, Elf, Two Weeks Notice, Glitter, Keeping the Faith, Godzilla, Ransom, Big Daddy, Mr. Deeds, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, The Other Woman, and The Bourne Trilogy. (laughs) Good for him. Yeah, and he said that Robin Williams was reportedly his favorite celebrity because he's everybody's favorite celebrity and that Martin Scorsese is his favorite director to work with <laughs> of all the directors he's worked with. He's got good standards. He's got, yes, he does. <laughs> uh, and there's a documentary that came out about him a few years back, which features a truly bonkers array of talent. Tom Hanks, Robin Williams, Meryl Streep, George Clooney, Josh Brolin, Johnny Depp, Matt Damon, Ricky Gervais, James Gandolfini, Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, Whoopi Goldberg, Helen Mirren, Tilda Swinton, Alfred Molina, Ron Howard, Shia LaBeouf and Tina Fey are all in it singing his praises. And Booby Goldberg once took him to the Oscars as her date. So that is a happy ending there for Radio Man. I love that, right? Yeah. Cool story. I need to watch that talk. It seems cool. So that is good. Unlike John Galliano. <laughs> All-time segue. <laughs> so that is good. Unlike John Galliano. Yes. And speaking of bad people... We have to talk about Mugatu's snide hench person, Katinka, played by Mila Jovovich. No, I can't. Mila, I can't say it. Mila Jovovich. Mila Jovovich. Maybe it's a soft J. Is it? I don't know. She's Yugoslavian? She's... Russian? I believe she's Russian because to prepare for her role, she studied her mother's Russian accent. And she also made a very interesting choice for her facial expressions. She later said, I was always very into her, her character, looking like she had just smelled something bad. (laughs) Oh, she was born in Kiev. You know, her middle name is Bogdanova. Bogdan, Bog, Bogdanovna, Bogdanovna, Bogdanovna. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
let's talk about perhaps the only good person in this movie, Matilda, a Time magazine reporter, trying in vain to unravel this tangled plot against the Malaysian prime minister. What kind of kickback was Ben Stiller getting from Time? Because he makes, in Secret Life of Walter Mitty, he's uh, he's working at the Time oh, wow. Photo Archives or Life, or it's like filmed at the Time Life building in Midtown. Interesting. Hmm. Well, Walter Mitty, that was written, I think, by James Thurber, who I think, or maybe he was a New Yorker cartoonist, actually. It is Thurber. Uh, it is Thurber, yeah. Um, so maybe that was a tribute to, like, the original career of, of Thurber, but I, I forget where James... I it was New Yorker. A more of a, it was a New Yorker, yeah. yeah. All the pen and ink stuff. Oh, I don't know. It's a big loose fan, I guess. Big Henry Loose fan. <laughs> But yes, the character Matilda, she writes a scathing article about Zoolander, but eventually warms up to him and they wind up together. And the character Matilda, of course, is played appropriately enough by actress Christine Taylor, who was slash is married to Ben Stiller. Weren't they like splitting up and then they got back together during COVID? They like moved back in with one another and then worked it out. That's good. She's a very pretty, she's a pretty lady. I always think of her as the woman from uh, Hey Dude on Nickelodeon. I think of her as the mean girl in the craft who they curse and her hair falls out. Oh, yeah. And, um, and of course, Marsha, Marsha Brady. Mm, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. There's no end to her rich <laughs> acting history. But yeah, Christine Taylor and Ben Stiller, they met on the set of a TV show that never ended up happening called Heat Vision. And they got married in 2000. And Christine Taylor, she said she likes to call Matilda the straight man in this movie. It's filled with so many over-the-top funny characters, and Matilda brings a sense of reality to the world. You need to have somebody who's a bit of an anchor, a voice of reason for the, for the audience. And Christine Taylor, she does a great job in this role, and she initially planned to skip the auditions because I guess she'd auditioned for the lead part in the Ben Stiller movie Meet the Parents the year before mm. and didn't get the part. I think it went to Terry Polo, I think. Yeah. And uh, so she decided it would make things maybe a little less awkward at home if she didn't try out for any more of her husband's movies. So uh, he'd been looking at people like Sarah Jessica Parker and Kate Hudson for the role of Matilda. But for whatever reason, it didn't work out with either of them. And then he asked his wife in what I think to be kind of an ungallant way. Christine later said, I remember getting a call from Ben one day saying... So what do you think about playing Matilda? Paramount, the studio who's making the movie, loves you, and you did the Brady Bunch movie for Paramount, and they would love you to do it. And still, like you said earlier, he gave this kind of oddly clinical, or maybe he's just trying to be professional, account of their professional relationship to the Daily Bruin. He said, working with my wife was great. I love my wife. That's good. It was really helpful for me, and I trust her sense of humor, and she's really smart. When you're acting and directing, you miss having a director. So I would go back to her a lot of times for feedback. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, Thankfully, Christine said she had a really good time on the set with her husband, leading them to work together again on Dodgeball, Tropic Thunder, and, oh, I said I was going to mention this anymore, (laughs) Zoolander 2. Speaking of Ben and Christine's relationship, Justin Theroux probably wouldn't have had a role in Zoolander without it. He was a friend of the couple, and he attended their wedding in 2000 when he breaked danced, broke danced? What's this, the past tense of... <laughs> break danced? Break danced. Broke danced. Broke danced. Broke danced mountain. mountain. Too easy. <laughs> uh, anyway, 
We're hitting, we're hitting new highs of, of idiocy on this on this episode. Well, what do you want? I mean, we're not we're not doing Susan Cain. <laughs> Justin Thoreau went to Ben Stiller and Christine Taylor's wedding. Danced funny in a way that we can't bring ourselves to physically say. And they thought it was so funny that Ben asked him to appear in Zoolander. There was the evil DJ, you know, who break dances in the movie. Um, Thoreau's appearance in this movie is apparently inspired by Gary Oldman's character in True Romance. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, as the um, as the drug dealer, uh, yep. S- S- Daryl Daryl Spivey or something. His name is with the dreadlocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh man, all time Oldman. <laughs> so, in case you haven't gathered so far, Zoolander is very much a family affair, packed with close Stiller slash Taylor associates, including Ben's own parents. And Ben Stiller, he originally intended on playing the role of Derek Zoolander's manager, Mari Ballstein himself, who's, I guess, a character based on the do-it guy from his sketch show. Never ring any bells? The You Can Do It? From no, Adam no, Sandler? that's from, that's from, no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, do it, do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Did I, I'm sure I, I, maybe you might have been the one who sent this to me, the um, Ben Stiller doing Bruce Springsteen counting. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> What'd I get up to? <laughs> I need to rewatch the Ben Stiller sketch show. I don't really it's know much really about good. him from like that era. Oh, man. So anyway, that character is what Marty Ballstein's based on. And Ben was going to play it himself, but it quickly became obvious that he had enough to do between writing and directing and starring in the movie. So he does what all overwhelmed people do. He asks his dad for help. His dad, of course, the legendary Jerry Stiller, uh, has created some awkward but apparently funny moments with his daughter-in-law on the set. As she recalled, being able to have a scene with my father-in-law where he's looking at my chest saying, with a push-up bra, you could have a nice rack of lamb going there, was funny. We were just laughing nonstop. Weird. <laughs> And then Ben Stiller's mother, uh, Jerry Stiller's comedy double act partner, Ann Mara, plays a protester at the Fashion Awards, I think at the beginning of the movie. Uh, Ben Stiller's sister, Amy, plays a hanger-on at Hansel's apartment. And his brother-in-law is the director of the commercial that closes the film. And then, of course, come the cameos. So many cameos in Mm. this movie. We talked about Bowie playing himself as the judge of the walk-off. And also, of course, there's Billy Zane. That's Derek's friend. That's a cool dude. <laughs> He's trying to help you. Mark Ronson is the DJ at the funeral for Zoolander's roommates, which is so weird because he, at that point, it was like long before he did any production work. I think he was just like a hot New York club DJ at that so point. So hot right now. <laughs> so, oh, there it is. Ah, ah, there came it up is. organically. Nice. nice. Uh, comedian Godfrey and Taj Crown. They are janitor's disguises for Derek and Hansel, respectively. And they're also bit parts by Lance Bass, Tyson Beckford, Victoria Beckham, Emma Bunton, Stephen Dorff, Fred Durst, Tom Ford, Cuba Gooding Jr., Tommy Hilfinger, Paris Hilton, Heidi Klum, Lenny Kravitz, Carl Lagerfeld, Little Kim, James Marsden, Natalie Portman, Gavin Rossdale, Winona Ryder, Gary Shandling, Christian Slater, Gwen Stefani, Donald Trump, Melania Trump, Donatella Versace, Sandra Bernhard, and Jennifer Coolidge has a small part as well. And I'm sure there are more I'm forgetting. Hmm. That's packed. Yeah, that's pretty. I, I would love some kind of list of most cameos in a movie 
That's got to be up there. Oh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. That's a good pick. The loved one? What's that? Oh, I, uh, th that was totally a thing in the mid 60s where they would have these like terrible movies that they would try to save by just like having every actor in Hollywood have like four lines in it. <laughs> it's a mad, 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 mad world. Spencer Tracy, Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, Mickey Rooney, Dick Sean, Phil Silvers, Jonathan Winters, like every comedian, Jimmy Durante. I mean, that's a classic. That's a good movie, a Stanley Kramer movie. But yeah, I don't know the loved one. Robert Morris, Jonathan Winters, Jonathan Gielgud, Liberace, Milton Berle, Robert Morley. Robert Morris. Oh. <laughs> Burt Cooper, R.I.P. Roddy McDowell, Tab Hunter, James Coburn, Paul Williams. The Paul Williams. Wow. Sir Paul Williams. <laughs> wow. All right. So, Stiller, challenge accepted for Zoolander 3. <laughs> so, that is the cast rundown. Oh, jeez. Sorry. Of uh, uh <laughs> still doing the episode. <laughs> still still S still on, still taping. taping. Still taping. <laughs> still here, still here. That's out loud. <laughs> well, true to its roots, the opening scene where Derek loses his model of the year title was shot during the 2000 VH1 Vogue Fashion Awards during the commercial breaks. I love that. Uh and making it possible that most of the audience was completely unaware what was going on. Uh, the sequence with the PETA uh, paint throwers before the show was shot separately in Los Angeles. Um, and, and again, that's Ben Stiller's mom as the main protester. He cast her because he thought she would make, quote, the perfect Upper West Side protester. And of course, in a movie about male models, it was crucial for them to nail the fashions. Uh, according to Ben Stiller, it was actually really tough to make the clothing funny because the haute couture world was already so over the top and ridiculous. See John Galliano's actual clothing line inspired by the homeless. Um, Stiller said, you can't outdo the fashion world. You look at some couture shows and they're really out there. So you can't get bigger than what's already there. It was a question of matching that and to have a real sense of humor in the outfits. Derek's specific style was more of an old school model with suits and collar shirts, like an early 90s feel. Hansel was much more about the crunchy granola, extreme sports, grunge model stuff. Robin Standifer and David C. Robinson, the costume designers, worked closely together to make sure the clothes would really pop. David C. Robinson had a hard time with this. He was brought into production late in the game after his predecessor was fired, and he had just five weeks on the job to bring everything together. He told MTV in 2021, There was a push to act fast, and it was fun. I actually tried to take the fashion aspect of it very seriously. My first approach, the first thing I pitched to Ben, was having each scene be a different editorial style. There was Helmut Newton for the funeral, Mario Testino for Hansel's Loft. It gave every scene this particular look, very low angle, black and whites. That's still there. But then Ben was like, no, no, no. At this point in 1999, teenagers did not read these fashion magazines and didn't have that kind of uh, awareness of fashion to really make a Helmut Newton joke land. Yeah, that scans. <laughs> But he wanted the jokes, so Ben Stiller wanted the jokes in here to be contextual, like you would laugh at the whether or not you knew anything about fashion. Uh, so he went back to the drawing board, and for the funeral, the joke there is how clueless Derek is of, at the entire situation. So the idea of putting him in all white <laughs> at the funeral, or the python suit with matching luggage set at the coal mine, those were the jokes because they were not dependent on insider knowledge of fashion. Uh, he continued, I think that's why the movie survived. If we tied the fashion moments or ideas of 1999, it would have just looked dated. But the jokes are not really about that. 
They're about the character and how clueless he is. Uh, the, apparently, the stuff for the derelict fashion show took a lot of effort. Robinson said, we collected garbage for weeks. We went picking through our trash saying, oh, look at this. It would be perfect. I went to the flea markets on weekends and got beautiful pieces of antique garbage, like an old doll from the 30s, which we pinned to one of the coats. There were a few flashes of beauty among the old wrappers and cigarette butts. Beautiful pieces of antique garbage. That's My sophomore record coming coming out next year. Hog Waste Lagoon. <laughs> you love Hog Waste Lagoon. It's a great it's a great album title. It really is the new cellar door. <laughs> uh, the Another production Donnie team... Darko reference. I'm glad we brought that back. <laughs> the production team, Comedy Works in Threes. The production team really went the extra mile when they were making this movie. Um, it's apparent when assembling, for example, Hansel's Soil Room which was a particular challenge since his loft was on the fifth floor. Uh, they took a mini backhoe and a freight elevator to move the requisite amount of soil to complete the look of the soil room. <laughs> it just sounds obscene. It really does. Uh, th but again, it goes back to the level of perfectionism that Stiller puts in everything. Um, he, for example, he is still haunted by the fact that Derek's tiny phone isn't small enough. <laughs> and he was also very nervous that his line, the center for ants, another one of the iconic lines yeah. in this movie wouldn't land. He told Will Ferrell, we've just got to commit to it and hope it works because it's such a stupid joke. Uh, and then there's Derek and Matilda's baby at the end of the movie with the tremendous hair. Uh, that is not the baby's real hair. No, it is the baby's oh, no, real sorry. hair. That is the baby's real hair and not a baby toupee. Uh, <laughs> although the blue steel... That's up there was cellar door. Baby toupee is up there with cellar door <laughs> never, for me. For sale, baby toupee, never worn. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's nice. a great short nice. story. Oh... <laughs> uh, the blue steel look that the baby pulls out, though, is CGI, sadly. We don't... We, 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 that's, there's union rules against that. Uh, the body part that is not real is uh, Derek Zoolander's boner in the massage scene. That was a remote control dowel manipulated by uh, an FX crew member with a joystick from under the massage table. Is so that a remote layers... control dowel manipulated by a special effects crew member with a joystick from under the massage table in your pocket? Or that... It... <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. 
See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Another exacting detail that Stiller labored over in this movie was the right color of the gas in the gasoline fight. Uh, <laughs> he was reportedly not happy with how it turned out. He thought it was too yellow. Which I can see. If you rewatch that scene, I mean, gas is a hard because it's got that weird rainbowy shimmer thing. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look good. So you're with him. I'm with him on that. Yeah, <laughs> it looks like some kind of like high C or Kool-Aid or something. Well, uh, the freak gasoline fight was a, a showpiece of the movie, uh, a set piece, if you will, through every phase of the script. Um, but the inclusion of Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go was a happy accident. Originally, they were going to hire some 41. <laughs> Wither some 41. Didn't the lead singer, like... Almost die. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Derek, Derek. Derek Wibley. Wibley. Yeah, I interviewed him. He was a nice guy. Did you? Oh, wow. Yeah. For people? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was this like when he was like coming back? It was back? when they were coming. Yeah, yeah. They were relaunching it. Yeah. Sweet guy. You know, I don't like his band. <laughs> <laughs> Storming through the party like my name is El Nino. When I was hanging out, drinking in the back of an El Camino. As a kid, was a skid. No one knew my name. Crashed my own house party because nobody came. It's the rap verse from uh from uh the first one. Fat, Fat lip. lip. Yeah, I once yeah. lost fifty bucks because I was so certain that, that was a Blink One Eighty Two song. Oh, yeah. I had I paid that too. It was one of those like they 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 demanded I pay up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That haunts you. It does, it does. It does. Anyway, so they were going to hire Sum 41 to write a new song to go into that scene, uh, and they stuck in Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go as a placeholder. And then when Sum 41 saw a rough cut, they insisted that the song stay. Which I, I kind of call BS on that, because I don't understand why they would turn down a boatload of money. Although in 2001, that's probably when they were still living high on the hog, so maybe they, yeah. they felt inclined to, to make an artistic call. But there are just way too many instances of that occurring in pop culture, and people are like, oh yeah, we were going to be hired to do this, but then we said, no, it's great as it is, and turned down a ton of money. I feel like there's a listicle on that, although I can't think of any other examples at this moment. <laughs> right? I, I like posit we, I posit this thing. Yeah, I have no support I, I, for it. I know it emotionally. I don't know it intellectually. <laughs> I do wonder where it falls apart. Sometimes I guess it's... I mean, we talked about when the I Will Always Love You thing, when when they were going to have Patti LaBelle sing it. And then before, oh, she yeah. said, before I could say, 
yes for real it went to whitney so i guess it's just a matter of like they probably cast a wide net and it's whoever says yes for the least amount of money is the person who ends up going with it and then it's up to the the band to save face afterwards by saying oh yeah we turned that down uh anyway just a that's my pet theory that's a good yeah everybody wins we we (laughs) seem like art first punks and uh and ben stiller we uh, has a great idea that we thought was couldn't be beat yeah all right are you an art first punk i think you are (laughs) i'm a fart first punk <laughs> it's uh, speaking of Blink 182 commercial level joke. <laughs> See, it doesn't take you're scraping the bottom of the barrel because you're sleep deprived. I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel because that's my natural habitat, <laughs> baby. Um anyway, uh R.I.P. Rufus, Brint, and Mikus. Uh a young Alexander Skarsgard one of his first film roles. According to the costume designer, David Robinson, the explosions in that scene were not CGI or even done on a backlot. He told MTV, we freaking blew up a gas station in Soho. I don't think I'll ever be able to do that again. I remember when we did it, car alarms went off for three blocks. It was quite an explosion, but it was Ben's idea to have them wear bright colors and all different colors. You wanted it to feel like a Pepsi commercial with everyone having a great time. (laughs) Like a Mentos commercial gone wrong. Um, there aren't a ton of like wild behind-the-scenes stories from uh, the production of Zoolander, un- unless you count actually blowing up a gas station yeah, in Soho. Fair. But there is a long, uh, long-lost ending, um, a- an unhappy one in which Zoolander dies. Ben Stiller told Esquire he has to shoot the blue steel or Magnum look at a train to stop <laughs> it, and the tra- and it doesn't work. The train plows and kills him. Basically, oh, phrasing like the train. F- <laughs> Are you looking for me for, for a response? Like the train <laughs> him. That's what, like the train plowed him and then killed him because you couldn't withstand being by a train. Uh, the train plows and kills him basically, and then he goes up to heaven. The studio put a stop to it for creative and practical reasons. Firstly, they didn't think that it was funny and wanted a feel-good ending to the movie. And also, building a whole heaven set would have been prohibitively expensive. But blowing up a gas station in Soho, man, it's fine. Yeah. Also, a heaven set isn't expensive. There's that famous uh, scene from Exorcist 3 where uh, George C. Scott wanders through heaven and it has Fabio and Samuel L. Jackson. You're kidding me. I am not. And Charles Bark, no, uh, Patrick Ewing, I think, is in there too. It's this famous scene from the like I the Fabio is the angel. The Lennon sisters is the angels. Larry King is himself. So, what? Yeah, is this supposed? Well, Larry to be King funny? is in a Larry King is in a diner scene, I think, or maybe he's is in the heaven scene. Wow, is this supposed to be funny? Patrick Ewing, Angel of Death. Yeah. Uh, no, it's very it's very weird. Anyway, call all that. Um, though, had they killed him off, they would not have done this terrible sequel we vow to stop mentioning. Um, in the draft of the script, there was an ending that would have taken place on Mount Rushmore, uh, hearkening back to Derek's early backstory that he grew up near the mountain, why he wanted such a chill face. Several sequences were going to take place in or around Mount Rushmore, like David Duchovny's hand model intervention, but this plot was scrapped in favor of the Derelict show. Was it which Hitchcock movie takes place on Mount Rushmore? I don't know. North by Northwest. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. 
Oh. Uh, not the whole thing, but it, it, the, the climax is on Rushmore. They almost ditched a bit about Zoolander not being able to turn left, which was apparently a huge plot point in an early version. Uh, but it <laughs> That's was tr- funny. It, that is my... It is Especially like you did the little throwaway gags where he turns the long way. Um, that was trimmed down in favor of uh, beefing up the Magnum face... Magnum face plot point instead. Magnum face. The Magnum face. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> Start for cold. Magnum no face. segue. No segue for you. <laughs> from Magnum face, of course, we go to censorship dramas. Mm. Yes. Uh, Zoolander had a surprising amount of controversy for a movie that like isn't... Well, I guess it does have a major plot point is killing a major head of government so maybe that that's probably explains that some of it but the uh mpaa the organization responsible for assigning movie ratings initially wanted to give zoolander an r rating due to the orgy scene in hansel's soil room and ben stiller he recut the scene five different times but still the mpaa refused to budge so stiller much like harrison ford did for his beloved large plane movie air force one made a personal appeal to the mpaa's 12 member board and according to Christine Taylor, he apparently said words to the effect of, listen, would I ever put my wife in anything that would be questionable? <laughs> Which, uh, not that great argument, but um, I guess he successfully argued that the scene, the orgy scene, was, quote, more silly than sexy, and he promised to remove a goat from the scene. <laughs> Good to know that was so, the Sometimes line. that's all it takes. Yeah, not, the finished dwarves were fine, but the goat, no. But he did, and he got his desired PG-13 rating. But Ben Stiller would knock it off so lightly in the country of Malaysia. Again, considering the plot centers around Zoolander being brainwashed into murdering the Prime Minister of Malaysia, it's perhaps unsurprising that the movie was banned in that country, with the censorship board claiming that it was, quote, definitely unsuitable for public consumption. Stiller responded to the controversy at the time by saying, I'm not an expert on the Malaysian sense of humor, but the film represents the prime minister as a heroic figure. I would think it was a good thing. The bad guys are the fashion designers, all right? Uh, Hilariously, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson met the actual Malaysian prime minister in 2012. (laughs) I have no idea why, but the event occurred without incident. Okay. This movie is also banned in Singapore due to some kind of diplomatic political ties with Malaysia. I'm not totally sure why. And I guess they were also offended by the film's peyote scene as well. (laughs) And so it was banned there until 2006. And when it was eventually released there, all references to the country of Malaysia were changed to Micronesia, the sub-region which Hansel mistakes for Malaysia at one point during the movie. In the Western version, I should say. (laughs) Another element of the film that was censored, if you can really call it that, was the World Trade Center. Zoolander was released just a few weeks after the 9-11 attacks, and so Ben Stiller opted to digitally alter a shot of the Manhattan skyline to remove the Twin Towers from it. In a letter to the New York Times, Ben Stiller explained that he wanted Zoolander to serve as escapist entertainment and not a reminder of the then-recent tragedy. One element of Zoolander that hasn't been digitally removed is Donald Trump. Mm. he's one of the people being interviewed at the fashion awards and the star-studded montage that opens the movie. And over the years, some have called for Trump's segment to be cut from the film, but Ben Stiller has refused. As he explained to MovieWeb, quote, at the end of the day, that was a time when that existed and that happened. There are so many movies back then that had a silly cameo from Donald Trump. He represented a certain thing. 
Or in the case of Home Alone 2, that thing was Ego. Wasn't it true that he like refused to let the production shoot at the plaza unless they gave him a cameo? No, that, that wouldn't surprise true. me. Yeah, I think it was just so funny because that's like not how cameos work. Like the rules of cameos that you have to be approached. It's not you. You can't like demand that you're put into a movie. It's not a cameo. Then it's a why? Why you are know, you looking for logic in the chambers of Donald Trump's withered heart? It's my favorite line from uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? <laughs> it's, a, it's a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart, Pete. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Uh, weirdly, Zoolander resulted in threats of legal action after its release from none other than author Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> in addition to writing American Psycho, he also published a satirical novel in 1998 called Glamorama uh, about a plot concocted by international terrorists who recruit from within the fashion industry. <laughs> and he reportedly sued the producers of Zoolander for plagiarism in 2005, and the case was settled out of court for an undisclosed sum. He was asked about it in a 2009 interview with the BBC, but said he was unable to discuss the topic due to the settlement. So that is all fine. Brad Easton Ellis sucks. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. That dude. Mary Heron made a way better movie than your than your novel, you Bennington Herb. Yes. yes I would yes, defeat yes. him in any f contest of physical strength with one hand and one leg tied behind my back. I would bully Brett Easton Ellis, shove him in a locker. How old is he? Oh, he's older than I thought. He's almost 60. Wow. Yeah. Who's the other guy who did Bright Lights, Bright City? That whole like late 80s. Uh, he New didn't York do Bright Lights. No, he didn't do. He, you're thinking of Less Than Zero. Bright Lights, Big City is J.U. McKierney. Famous Jay for McKierney, being yeah. uh, written entirely in the second person tense. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm hmm. Zoolander was released on September 28th, which, as we said earlier, was unfortunately close to 9-11. In fact, when news footage of the 9-11 World Trade Center attacks first broke on the TV station WNYW, it interrupted a trailer for Zoolander. <laughs> Metaphor. <laughs> so, as you might imagine, you people see, weren't really... Do you ever see uh, in Don't Be a Menace? Oh my god, no, but I... I I know it. There's there's a recurring bit where every time someone lapses into like um like an overly belabored like boys in the hood like emotional <laughs> speech about getting out of the ghetto or something or some kind of like sociopolitical commentary, one of the Wayans pops in as a mailman. He just like leans his head into the frame and just goes, Message <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I think of whenever I I think of some on the nose political commentary. It's just him going, Message <laughs> <laughs> Well, as you might imagine, people weren't really in the mood for a silly comedy in the wake of a national tragedy, and that hurt box office numbers. And another thing that Donnie Darko has in common from this movie, also oh, hurt yeah. by 9-11. Here's, here's a serious question. Jordan, if I, let me get serious with you for a second. Let me, let's get down to brass tacks here. What was the window after which it became okay to laugh again? <sighs> I would say... I'm actually am basing this on like pop culture memories of the time. I would say like around like late October. I feel like after the big concert for New York TV special, I feel like that kind of was like yeah the the big media event that attempted to offer some form of closure before mm. getting back to normalcy. Uh, again, I'm I I'm making this up, but that's just my sense looking back on it. Um, well, the highest grossing film of 2002, or the highest grossing comedy was My Big Fat Greek Wedding. That came out in like May, right? 
followed shortly April 19th uh-huh. of 2002, followed shortly by Austin Powers in Goldmember. So, oh, these are 2002 comedies. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, about like what 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 like cinematic uh, 2001 would have been something from earlier in the year probably. Rush Hour 2. Oh, well Shrek may Oh, may, yeah, but, yeah. But but yeah. let's see past release date. Yeah, Zoolander came out September 28th. Uh was in 56 56 of the year. Oh, wow. Corky Romano came out October 12th. Honestly, that was a big reason that I didn't really like Zoolander initially was that he reminded me of a Corky Romano Because you were pulling character. for Corky Romano. No, I, I, I hate Chris Kattan and I hate oh, okay. Mango and I hate all of his characters. And so Ben Stiller in this kind of seemed like it would have been a Chris Kattan character. I don't know. I just... Oh, Monsters, Inc. came out November 2nd. It's that old? Holy shit. Yeah. Shallow Howl came out November 9th. Oh, I would man. say those were probably the, the, the signals that it was okay to begin the healing mm. was Shallow Howl <laughs> and Monsters, Inc. A nation turns its <laughs> eyes to Shallow Howl. <laughs> wow. Uh, God bless you, please, <laughs> Mrs. Farrelly. This is instructive. Royal Tenenbaums was December se- December 14th. I'm trying to think. There were no other big comedies that came out. Well, Christine Taylor later said, it was such a hard time with comedy right after 9-11. Laughing might have been a remedy in the moment, but the truth of the matter is people weren't ready. And Zoolander went on to make only $15 million over the course of its opening weekend, which was half the production budget. Ain't great. And the timing, in addition to hurting box office numbers, also made reviewers a little wary of the movie. You know, it was a New York-based film that dealt with terrorism. The Washington Post described it as a, quote, one-joke movie, while Time Out wrote that it was, quote, a vanity comedy that fails at every level. Ooh. And Roger Ebert, as is his wont, was especially hostile. He gave the <laughs> film one star out of four and opened his review by saying that Zoolander was evidence of, quote, why the United States is so hated in some parts of the world. And Ooh. he was also especially horrified by the insensitive portrayal of child labor. Yeah. Though he also admitted in his review that Zoolander just might be the victim of bad timing, which is probably more closer to the truth. Uh, Years later, Ben Stiller claimed to the Huffington Post that he actually met up with Roger Ebert, who, quote, apologized for going overboard in his review and admitted that he'd grown fond of Zoolander in later years. And that's not all. Arthouse director Terrence Malick of all people, Hmm. counts Zoolander as one of his favorite films and included it in a season of films that he presented to the Philbrook Museum of the Arts in Tulsa. (laughs) What do you think of that? I didn't have Terrence Malick as as a a fan of this. Yeah, didn't. Sorry. I guess I go say at the top of the episode, some of the biggest snobs I know quote this movie all the time. They love this movie. It's interesting. But... Like so many movies we've talked about on the show, Zoolander bombed for its theatrical release, but then turned it around in home video, became a cult favorite. As Ben Stiller told Esquire, people saw it on DVD or cable or satellite, and it became this like rare piece of vinyl almost. People discovered it and really enjoyed it at home. That's part of the reason I think it's such a beloved movie, because everyone has a personal connection to it. I don't know about the rare vinyl analogy, but... (laughs) And that's all I got to say about Zoolander. What do you think, Heidel? You know, I, I, I admire its purity, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's I, I use that line way too much, but it really is. It knows what it is. Yes. Right? It, it It's not making pretensions or trying to hit above its station. 
you know, it's just a great low stakes, silly comedy that history is proven correct, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no notes, <laughs> as I rarely say. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Uh, Do I have something to go out on? As Donnie Darko once said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, just trying to make that work. Nope, nothing. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX, now playing, and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.